BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Doing that, I was face-to-face with it. It was holding me by my throat. And it felt like it was sucking something out of me. I probably should have been more scared than I was when I witnessed the exorcism. I turned and looked on my right side. When I did, there's there's a beam on the side of the tree, a large beam. It's looking at me and I'm looking at it. After I hit the lock button and looked back up, I saw red eyes staring back at me. That they're going to show multiple gods all over the earth, be able to speak in people's languages, and at that point, it kind of converge into this one entity, which will be revealed as extraterrestrial. You'll realize that aliens are the gods of old, and at that point, it'll wipe religion out of the context of humanity. No, it couldn't have been a person, I know that. I know that people can't run through the woods like that. So this thing comes into view, and I see it. It's 50 yards away from me. It's walking. It's walking on two legs. It's huge. This is a big, hairy-looking being. kind of evil entities. 
He seems to walk in the light, as it were, and has a relationship with, let's call them, universal spirits. If you will, welcome with me, Justin. Justin, welcome to Uncomfortable. Hey, Eric, it's great to be on the show with you. Thank you so much for that introduction. Very atmospheric. Well, thank you. And I appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us. We had a phone call not too awful long ago. And I honestly, I was, I was really struck with, you know, and I think in the phone call I alluded to, you know, whether it be Hollywood or, uh, um, books in general, you know, when you talk, when you deal with the occultism or the occult nature of things, people have a tendency to think that you're going to be a very dark individual, somebody who is kind of walking in the shadows as it were. And, uh, man, during our conversation, I just didn't get any of that from you. You're a very upbeat very positive sounding person and and everything you told me about this your practices you're dealing with some sort of a like a minor love affair with with universal spirits is that is that pretty accurate i would say that's very accurate um because you know during our phone call we we discussed a lot of the elements which might constitute what it means to be a cult. And I was just as surprised as you were probably by that interaction to find that a lot of the popular perception of the word occult might be uh, like the old satanic panic or mm-hmm. dark or gothic or something where it's negative oriented. Right. And, you know, maybe even doing a precursory amount of research into it would probably give you that impression. But uh, you know, when I, call myself an occultist and, and even within esoteric fields, it can be unusual, but I call myself an occultist because the origin of the word occult simply means hidden or obscured knowledge. And I've always loved the idea of pursuing this secret or hidden knowledge. And I have been doing so, uh, for about 13 or 14 years, ever since I was, um, about 14 or 15, I really engaged on this journey of trying to find out what sort of secrets or mysteries the universe hides outside of our everyday life. It just enthralled me totally. And so as I developed more along the path and began to be aware of the existence of spirits around us, which are of course, invisible entities that operate independently is a good word for it. Not like ghosts or, you know, people that have passed on, but these spirits out there that uh, might be the breeze or the force of gravity. I found that uh, a cult is generally the right term for them because they're hidden and out of sight, and so is the knowledge used to access them. So you said you you started your journey at about 13 or 14. I did. How long did it take you uh, on this journey till you started to understand where to find this this hidden information of how to interact with these uh i'm sure i'm sure throughout the years you've become more and more adept at at 
contacting them and and having interactions with them. But how long did the how long of a that the beginning interim before you were able to actually start interacting? It's it's a hard thing to quantify, but uh, I would say. I started, let's say when I was 14 and what I was doing is I had become an atheist prior to that and just kind of shrugging off that organized religion as I was starting to mature a little bit. And I couldn't shake this sense of awe when I looked out at the universe that felt spiritual. And so I started to just go out at night and look up at the sky and, and pray to that sense of awe. And the metaphor, it's a journey, not a destination, is totally at play here because, you know, sometimes it's about how far you've traveled down the road until you turn around and look back and you realize how far you've gone. So there are moments throughout this journey that you can look back on and say, wow, I definitely know more about the occult or spiritualist side of life than I did five years ago. But I think by the time I realized and had done a bunch of experimentation. I was probably like 18 or 19. So I'd had years to put into practices like scrying, and I was finally getting something tangible out of them. And scrying, if you don't know, is looking at a very dark or uh, glossy surface and eventually being able to see visions in it. And you can get good at that, and it just takes time and effort, right? So by the time you put all these pieces together, uh, using your imagination to go into a trance state, using scrying, doing rituals and seeing that they influence coincidence. You can sort of get a bigger picture by putting together all these puzzle pieces. It's still a hard thing for me to wrap my head around. Let's jump into it. Yeah. I mean, the initial thought for me is it has to be something evil or nefarious that's interacting with you. Now, I'm not saying that's my belief, but it's easy to jump to that. I would say that that's a natural feeling because, you know, when we see things that we don't identify, I'm sure as many people in your podcast have expressed, that just baffles the mind. You don't understand what it is, such as a cryptid or, you know, a ghost. I think our natural impulse is to be afraid of it, especially when we hear, I think, through organized religion, all the stories about how nefariously evil these spirits are. It just kind of seeps into our brain that interaction with spirits is a negative thing and it's always going to end badly for you. And in my experience, what I found was I eventually at some point considered myself adept enough to try to take on that challenge. Right. And I was fearful. And then when I got to it, I was loaded with all these fears and insecurities that people had taught me and told me within the esoteric community. And I decided I'm going to do it anyway of my own accord and see what happens. You know, I'm a very scientific, experiential and experimental person. And so I jumped into it with all of my tools and abilities. And I found out that a lot of these negative entities that are generally in the modern lexicon considered to be demons, such as goetic spirits, we're very friendly and inviting, and I found it absolutely uh, entertaining, wild, and uh, just now for the listeners. All in I'm sorry for the listeners. What is a, a what did you say? A goetic, a goetic spirit. Yeah. And, so and if you get in, if you get into uh, like popular demonology or in popular culture, 
the demons that you generally know the names of are usually what's called goetic spirits. And goetic spirits come from an old grimoire uh, called the Key of Solomon, which was written down in the 1600s, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but it was 1600s, 1700s. And it was alleged to be a much older work to the time of Solomon. And Solomon had built the first temple of Jerusalem using these very, uh, what was called spirits or demons. And the Greek word, uh, daemon, means helper spirit. And not so much an evil and nefarious word, but with the adoption of these practices being kind of outcast by organized religion, it became a haha demonized term. Right. right? So uh, what we get out of this book is 72 spirits and they're called goetic spirits. And a lot of their names might ring a bell, such as Paimon, uh, Baal, Astaroth, you know, kind of these usual names are associated with these great evil figures from pop culture. But that's not very true. I mean, it's kind of like uh, the impression of a lion, right? A lion can be very beautiful. We can go out and enjoy lions on safaris. But when you're in a room with a lion, it's probably not an optimal situation and you're going to be afraid because they're great, powerful creatures and spirits. Mm, That makes sense. So is this the, the mass of spirits that you have contact with and, and do your, um, do your communications with is, is that, is that the brunt of, of the spirits that you contact or is that just one segment of, what you're aware of is out there. I would say that I work with goetics a lot of the time because I find them extremely pleasant, agreeable, and very similar to us, which makes me comfortable, which is surprising after, uh, you know, going through that journey to overcome the fear of these spirits. Are they, are they spirits of past humans? No, I don't believe so. But the best description of them I had ever read was they are reflections of us. So if you go into it as a person that is willing to torture this spirit and dominate it and control it, you're going to get a reflection of that from a very powerful spirit opposite you. So if you call on them to do evil, you will receive them at their most evil. I wouldn't say that. I would say if you are acting evil to ask them to do something, then you're going to get a reflection of that evil through the demon, and it will be terrifying and scary. So if you're bullying them to get what you want out of them, that's what you're going to get back in return. Exactly. And that's why I say that they're just like people, because if you bully somebody to get what you want out of them, that person is not going to have a favorable opinion of you. And when they can get back at you, they will. Okay. Now earlier you said you were atheist or you had, you had become atheist at, at one yes. point. Yeah. It was. Um, where are you at now? And, and this is going to tie into the, the next question. So now I would say, um, I believe in a supreme consciousness. A lot of people might call it like a source consciousness of everything that exists in the entirety of the universe or omniverse, whatever you want to call it. I don't think it's engaged or active very much in our lives. 
But uh, I do think that we can receive profound spiritual insights from that source. And uh, it really plays into another spirit category that I like to do evocations with, which is what the summoning of spirits is called a lot, which is angels. So I work with angels and demons a lot. And angels seem closer to that source and uh, are very different because of it. But for me, I, I kind of just live my life. I enjoy working with the spirits. And I believe that there's some sort of supreme consciousness out there. But maybe it's just as natural as the presence of light and is not the same sort of intelligence as we are. So, okay, now you just kind of blew my mind. So you're talking about these goetic spirits that you deal with, but you're also dealing with angels. So mm-hmm. that, that broadens the scope of things for me. Um, angelic from what we are taught, are emissaries of God. I think that's very true. I think, um, you know, the interpretation that we have of them is is probably limited in scope because of how long ago that it was. And, you know, maybe it wasn't as directly transcribed in the holy text as what actually happened. But I, I think that when you work with angels, you will immediately, uh, if you're serious about it, find out that it's, very readily available to you. I've had a lot of um, really interesting paranormal experiences happen during rituals with angels, and they're very upfront and kind about their presence, which I find very interesting, as goetic demons are more shadowy and more reluctant to appear. Okay, so the angels are actually, from your experience, coming from a place of of good and, and of light. They definitely seem very orderly, and they feel like they are close to that thing that we might call source consciousness. So some people may interpret that as God or the capstone of the pyramid of spirits, like in uh, Hindu theosophy. So what you want to interpret that is up to you, but these angels are definitely pretty close to the top of that. And as such, they maintain the order of the universe and seek uh, the highest benefit of the souls. Okay, so you, you, world. you painted a picture of, of this pyramid, and at the top of the pyramid, we'll call it God or the supreme creator. Being. Being. Yeah, the creator, supreme being. And then below that, um, fairly close below that, you have these angelic beings, correct? Yes, I would say so. Then where on that pyramid are are we talking about these goetic spirits? Where do they fall? I mean, I'm I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a, you know, are these, are they, are they polar opposites? Are they uh, at play with each other in a, in a kindly fashion? Are they um, completely, completely different? So let's get into it. This is an interesting cosmology. And if you're familiar with esotericism or occultism, uh, you will definitely see this expressed in a lot of different concepts because there's a goetic equivalent of angels and it's called the Shem Hemi Forash and it comes out of uh, Judaistic history. But so all of these angels and demons are reflected by one another. There are 72 angels that are generally fitting into uh, occult or esoteric. Um, scripts and history. And there's also that flipped version of 72 Goetics. So you might say, why is that reflection there? Why is there a ruling angel to a Goetic spirit? And I think first we have to dispel the idea that if higher up means close to source and God, 
that lower down must mean evil because we're generally pretty accepting of that idea. Mm-hmm. Lower down and below does not mean evil. So I've uh, sort of experienced and found out. It just means the opposite, right? So the opposite of light is darkness. The opposite of order being chaos. Neither of these things are inherently good or evil. They just are states of existence. And so as we get closer to the bottom, we get more and more disordered chaos of the universe, which is necessary for us to live balanced lives. So in my mind, uh, the idea of an elemental spirit, something that is born of nature, uh, it might be the water, right? Water is both kind and soothing and tranquil and also destroys cities when it is disturbed and becomes a tsunami. So it is both fearful and peaceful. And I think that these goetic entities are more representative of that raw elemental strength, the brutality of nature if need be, but also the beauty of it. And that's exactly the spot that they sit in and are personifications of. Now you say that the the goetic are, are more of a chaotic spirit and the, the angelic are more of an ordered. Can you, can can you give a, can you give us an, uh, an analogy of why it is you, you feel that the angels are a more ordered group. What is it about your interaction with them that makes you feel that? I think the difference between goetics and angels is that angels are primarily concerned about, the growth of intelligent souls, that being humans, goetics, and also other angels, right? They serve this greater good of consciousness moving into more and more complex categories. And goetics are simply manifestations of what is already natural around us. So they have no obligation to uplift their neighbor, and they have no obligation to be friends with you if they disagree with you. And angels, that's their primary mission, is to support all life and make sure that it grows into what it needs to be. So I think that philosophical difference is what defines their different approach and why we perceive them to be like that. What an interesting duality. And, you know, if if what you're saying is, obviously it's your truth, but if it's if it is in fact quantifiable, that what you say is I can, I can see where throughout the ages um, certain groups of organized religions would have put the mark on the, the goetic spirits as being demons and being the complete opposite. And I could, I can, you know, just by the way you're explaining, I guess I can see that separation because with with many religions there's good and there's evil there has to be for for the story to work there has right. to be the good and the evil and right and in in an organized fashion you you have this plot line where it's moving somewhere right. and inspires some hope or belief and the organization kind of cultivates that hope and belief and steers it in the right direction so you've got to have an antagonist to your story so in your interaction with either group of spirits, are you actually able to communicate? Can you, can you ask some questions about, you know, hey, how do you, an angel in front of you or 
in your in your head in your uh, in your conversation. Can you ask that uh, angelic being what is their interaction with goetic spirits? What yes? What's the so dynamic? I think that is a great question because people that allege to talk to spirits deserve to be scrutinized because I was a scrutinizer too. And many people are unable to surrender this information for some reason. So what I do is I go out into a shed and I have this ritual um, and I, I use a modified version of a ritual from both Damon Brand and Gordon Winterfield who are part of this organization called the gallery of magic, excellent books. If anybody's trying to do stuff like this, but I use a modified version of that ritual and I sit there and I trance out, which means, you know, using this ritual as a tool to get into an altered state of consciousness. And when I do that, I can close my eyes and I can see the lights behind my eyes turn into pictures or forms or I can stare at a black surface that I have in that room, which appears to be pitch black. And I can usually see these spirits start to waft in. And then there becomes a distinct sort of uh, telepathic communication, if you want to call it that. But once you start to experience it, you can tell how distinct it is, which may sound unusual and, and slightly crazy if you've never experienced it. But if you practice these things, I would say for a couple of years, you will start to get inklings of it, right? Have you ever walked into a room and felt like something was not right? That's the same sort of mecha mechanism at work. It's just falling into more and more complex categories of communication. It's odd that you picked that as your analogy, that you walked into a room and felt like something wasn't right. Is is there is there something behind that, or was is that just a, a poor choice because when when talking about spirits, <laughs> you know, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I just used it because most people have experienced that in their life. And they'll say afterward, I don't know what it was, but something just was wasn't off. right in the it room. It was off. Right? So that's a very good introductory sort of idea to the idea that your subconscious can be used to communicate messages from people that have bad intentions around you. And to your I consciousness. I want. I want to be clear. I'm, I don't keep bringing up the um, the evil or the nefarious because that's what I want to hear from you. That's that's not why I'm doing that. But don't from worry. The, from the standpoint <laughs> of from the standpoint of somebody who was born and raised in the Catholic Church, there are seeds that are planted at at very early ages that even though your entire uh, thought process is different now as a, a, a mid fifties adult, they come rushing back. When you start talking about things that are on the other side of the veil, those things that you were taught as a child, they come rushing back. And, uh, and I'm trying to approach this from the standpoint of a listener. I'm not trying to get you to say that everything is evil. That's in fact, just the opposite. It is, it is refreshing for me to hear somebody talk about this and, and that, quite possibly all those things on the, on the other side of the veil, even the polar opposite of an angel is not necessarily evil. No, there's no good or evil in, in the natural world. And, and these spirits are very representative of the natural world. And, uh, you know, good and evil is something that we come up with because we have a sense of morality, right? And we have a sense of community and we need to know where we stand in that community. But these spirits are not us. They're other 
intelligent beings out there and they have different modes and methods of operating. But I think that that approach is reasonable and rational or rational. And I completely understand where you're coming from because I was there at one point and uh, it was only my incessant curiosity and desire to know even at personal risk for myself that drove me to interact with these spirits and really say, I'm going to get this right because other people have been able to do it. I should be able to do it too. And what I found when I crossed that was that they're just like us. And that is, I think, just like the discovery that the earth rotates around the sun is, is right in line with the way that we find the universe operates. In communion with any of these spirits, whether they be angelic or goetic, have you ever received information from them as to where they are from where do they originate from where is where is their place somewhat i i've never like directly asked i don't feel like they are uh outside of this planet like they're alien entities i feel like they are a personification of natural currents and i think the easiest way to explain that is when we look at old god mythologies like Norse mythology or Egyptian or Greek, right? Uh, we might say that Zeus is the personification of lightning and thunder, but also leadership and uh, you know being the head of a family. Mm-hmm. These are all these things which bundle together somewhere and are expressed in other cultures where Odin is a god of uh, lightning and thunder and is also the head of his organization. So early peoples were finding that personifications carried this symbolic association with them. And these spirits are, I think, just the same thing expressed into a different form. Maybe they're simpler, more identifiable forms, but these spirits represent natural things in life, such as, you know, the... uh, romantic side of all life that loves to love and what comes with that or the flowing of rivers, both being destructive or peaceful. And they knowing that the boundaries of their uh, natural element is both of these things. But I think that it's wrong to try to look at them as people or personifications and the more we understand about their personification, the more we understand about the existence of an element like water or uh, a storm or whatever they are. It's immensely complex once you get into them, what they exactly represent. But to me, that's what it seems to communicate is that these are natural forces that we are simply shaping into the ideas of people. And at some point we found that they communicated back and they were called spirits or gods. So I'm going to ask this, and you don't have to answer. Um, but when you go into your your place where you you do a ritual, and you um, you want to commune with these spirits, what what are you looking for? What are you? Why are you engaging that evocation? of these spirits. And the second part of that is there a difference 
do you, when you're trying to achieve something by uh, doing a ritual to get in contact with these spirits, are you choosing goetic or angelic? And is there a difference in how you approach trying to contact those spirits? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I would generally, so I'll start with this. When I do like a group ritual for everybody, for multiple people, I'll generally use angels and I'll use angels that are good messengers, uh, such as Metatron. Uh, I use a lot and, and he, he's kind of in, in the mythology supposed to be closest to God, you know, the ascended version of Enoch, a scribe or record keeper for God. But in many esoteric circles, he's considered to, if you give him a request, give it to the right angel. So in a group ritual, um, I will generally, uh, evoke or summon an angel. And then we'll like, if everybody has an intention, uh, we'll write it on a piece of paper and either keep it or burn it to kind of put it out there to the universe. And a lot of people get a really altered state of consciousness when doing rituals like that. I've seen that numerous times, but for me, when I go out there to my shed, which is my temple setup, and I get into that altered state of consciousness, there's a couple of reasons why I'll probably be doing it. One is just to commune with the spirit. A lot of times you'll find that spirits are kind of teachers, or you might even call them invasive, not in a negative way, but once you notice them, they start to notice you back. And so you go and learn from these spirits what they're capable of teaching, which is often referenced in esoteric uh, writings like the Key of Solomon, that they're great teachers. And so really starting to contact one is more of a relationship over time. And that's why I say that they represent natural processes because you'll get strange things that happen and you just say, hmm, I wonder if that's that goetic spirit that I started forming a relationship with because now these birds seem to be coming all the time or I seem to have, you know, the wind blowing around me all the time, stuff like that. Secondly, you can use the goetic demons or you can petition them to get something done for you, which I've also found is very effective. It's kind of like asking a friend a favor. Hey, you are really good at this. Can you please help me out and go and, you know, get me a car for a discount when I need to go get one tomorrow? And uh, I think within those two things is encapsulated pretty much the experience that you would go into the temple with to try to evoke these entities. Though, I mean, you know, anything that you can come up with is just as valid. It's just having a friend <laughs> from a different place in time and space that can do radically different things than you can. And I think that they enjoy us evoking them as much as we enjoy evoking them. Okay, to be clear, when you go knocking on that door, do you know who's going to be on the other side? Yes. You, you know that you have, you have reached out to an angelic spirit and you know an angel is going to be on the other side. It's not a matter yeah. of knocking on the door, opening up, and being surprised at who's there, goetic or angelic. Um, yes, that's, that's completely true. I think that your concentrated and focused will, you know, your ability to unify your consciousness in a singular direction is really important to this. So 
getting over the fear of summoning a demon is really important because if you have those lingering insecurities or doubts and you're not quite certain about this, but you're trying it anyway, I think that's where you can have that possibility of negative things coming in. But I think if you just do enough research and you have enough experience kind of weighing it out, then you can safely say that the phone number I'm dialing is, I know it's going to be them and I'm not going to allow anything else to come in here. And there's a lot of rituals that you can do, such as the very popular lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram to get everything else out. And then you create a space just for what you intend to evoke. What else is there that could come in? Um, I can't speak from experience because I've never been in a situation where I got like a chaotic or trickster spirit that appeared instead of the spirit that I intended to get. And I don't know if I'm a weird exception in that regard, but I have seen in one instance, um, people use a Ouija board where the spirit in the Ouija board ignored me and wouldn't talk to me and only tried to destabilize the relationship of the two people that were using the Ouija board in addition to myself. It wouldn't answer any of my questions, but it was happy to let these two people create this paranoia between themselves that this spirit was some sort of manifestation of their uh, their, their trauma that was being taken out on each other. And I was, I was trying to give my best warnings not to feed into this stuff, but for them it ended up being a very uncomfortable experience. And I think that's the only time I've ever really witnessed like a negative non-invited invader trying to just get a feeling, right? People being scared or people being fearful. And I think that there are lesser spirits out there like that. But again, if you know what you're doing and, and you do something very popular, lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, the idea is to clear the space before you do anything so that you don't have these possibilities happening. You're not just opening it up to any spirit you're creating a vacuum where only one spirit is going to come through and you're creating that with your will as being the magician or uh, the, the manifestation of a supreme being, you being aware that your will and consciousness is creating the environment around you and then allowing only that spirit in. Now you use the word magician and I, Anybody can go on YouTube and look up um, demon-aided magicians. And, you know, there's these guys doing these ridiculous sleight of hand or tricks or levitations or anything. And, um, you know, the the basis for the video is that real demons are actually aiding in this person's performance. <laughs> are, interesting. Are, are there demons in existence not like what you've been talking about but like what i've been alluding to uh yeah i i definitely think there are i mean we have enough documented cases like you know the uh story from behind the exorcist right where possession really happens mm -hmm. and people need to be exercised now here's where i might differ in opinion i don't think those entities are the same things as goetic demons that was the point and i was even at. even though the name demon applies to both of them so too does the word spirit 
And I think that these negative entities, I would call them negative entities. They can be evil, wrathful. I, I would think or hypothesize that these are departed human spirits that just have no other outlet in life or not in life, right, but the afterlife than to collect human suffering. If the only way that they can engage with people in the afterlife is by causing them shock or fear, then eventually I think being stuck in the afterlife in this sort of purgatory that they might have to develop on making those abilities more profound Hmm. because what other options do they have, right? You're stuck in the afterlife. You're a ghost. The only way you can interact with people is you slam a cabinet door and everybody gets scared and they start to produce this emotional conscious energy in some way you're able to feed off of and slam a larger door. And so you just start snowballing into being somebody or a spirit that feeds off of that fear or wrath or whatever you're attuned to. And sometimes maybe it it can even work in the opposite direction and you can get positive spirits that have passed through the afterlife, which we hear about sometimes too. Ghosts Mm -hmm. that stick around to do something good or protect people. But I think a lot of those evil spirits are just departed human spirits who have gone mad or crazy after having been stuck in the afterlife for so long and not knowing what to do. So in using these spirits, when you commune with them and you're asking them to affect some change or affect the outcome of something for you, is there a payment rendered on your part? No, and I've got a very good metaphor for that. I think doing magic with a K, not with a C, Aleister Crowley popularized, I don't like Aleister Crowley, but he popularized a misspelling of magic, M-A-G-I-C-K, which differentiates esoteric magic from magic. But I think when you're doing magic, it's a lot like painting a painting. There is no real payment that's required except your time and your effort to produce that work of art. And what we're doing when we do magic is tapping into a source of consciousness which pervades the universe and painting that painting of what we'd like to see. And sometimes our friends come over to help us paint more vivid paintings or more accurate paintings. And that would be interacting with spirits to to get your magical goals. Interesting. So with the the advent of your your 14 or 15 years of experience with this, um, do you find that you are much more open to the, the odd, the, the strange experiences, the, the things that some people would ignore or look past? I would like to think so. Um, you know, it's not like I go for a drive at night and, and see ghosts walking down the street or anything like that. But I think that the universe will send significant things in the path of people that can appreciate it because otherwise, what is the point? You know, if it's kind of like synchronicities, I think people listening will generally understand what synchronicities are, Mm -hmm. but when you have an incredibly meaningful coincidence happen, that is just too coincidental to be random unordered coincidence 
there have been so many synchronicities that have happened with me during the course of doing this show that it's not even funny anymore. It is, it is come to be expected. And when they, when they show themselves, it is, it's not even shocking anymore. It has happened so many times. I can't even tell you. I completely agree. And uh, I've had points in my life where synchronicities, it was just all day, every day. And uh, I, I got this understanding from that time in my life that synchronicities were kind of like the language of the universe, right? When the universe noticed that you notice it and it's sort of living consciousness uh, interaction, then it starts to send these messages to you and say, hey, I notice what you're doing or keep going in this direction or whatever sort of synchronicity comes along. That's a pretty good starts, description of it. That the way, the way you just described it, that, that resonates with me. Yeah, it starts to communicate a little bit back and say, this is more than just your imagination. In fact, this highly significant bird that is never around is outside your window at a significant time because I'm trying to show you that there's more and you need to either think about it or pursue it or allow that feeling in yourself to manifest. Because I think the common misconception that we make is that we are separate from the universe and that we exist in this little vacuum chamber. But the, I don't think the universe sees it that way at all. There is no line in between our body and our mind and the rest of the universe. So we're just as much as the universe outside of ourselves. Now, aside from your practice, you have indicated to me that you have been in the presence of and witnessed some unusual shadow-type people, entities. Yeah, I've, I've had a couple of situations which... Uh, I've written about before um, that were like physical things that I could see right in front of me that I absolutely could not explain, but I could identify. Um, well, if you would so, tell, tell the listeners about these and let me, let me preface by asking first, do you think that what you are about to tell us is a result of you practicing magic? No, I, you know, I do not think that these two are related and, um, you'll, you'll probably see why during the story, but I think, you know, you get a lot of people that see a bunch of weird things that they can't explain regardless of whether or not they're practitioners or not. So I don't think these stories are related to my practice, but it gives me a lot of joy to see things in the universe and out there in the the streets that, that are completely unexplainable. And it kind of, you know, comforts you to know that even with what you're doing, there's still even greater mysteries out there and even in the physical world. So the first story, uh, I'll tell you happened, goodness, it must've been seven or eight years ago. And maybe even more than that, because it was during the housing market crash. And I think I was, 17 or 18, but, uh, the back of my parents' neighborhood was completely, uh, not abandoned, but they just never developed it into anything. And it was cut into a very large state forest in Northeast Florida. And so 
this state forest is totally untouched. And as I learned, living kind of carved into it and snaked through it, there is weird stuff that happens all the time. So the first thing I ever saw was me and my cousin went to the back of the neighborhood and we were just sitting at the end of a road staring back onto the road. And it was kind of bordered on the forest itself. In fact, it went onto a dirt road and we were parked right on where the concrete turned into dirt. And because the back of the neighborhood, and this is probably two or three miles uh, from any house or suburban environment into and snaked into this Jennings State Forest, the grass was six feet high on these lots, which hadn't been developed. And so we're sitting there looking down a street, and my cousin goes, cuz, cuz, look up, because I was on my phone. And I look up, and there's a person. It looks like a naked person crouched down as low as they can go, just totally covered from head to toe in mud. And their eyes are... I I can't see because it's like maybe 15 or 20 feet away, but they seem pretty dark. And I look up and I just have no idea what it was. And my heart starts pumping. And I think, you know, my cousin is just going cold. And as we stare at this thing, just peeking out of the grass right there on the curb, it shoots across the road like a, like a cockroach is the best way I can describe it. It was inhumanly fast for, how crouched down it was and its legs moved like somebody that was crouching across the road. So of course, like most other people, very natural reaction, me and him just gas it and get out of there because we've just seen a physical humanoid looking creature that nobody has ever reported or seen anything about. So very frightening experience. And and it makes my heart race just to think about it. Because you don't know what that thing's capable of. So it shot across the road and into the grass. So obviously it didn't want to be seen. And it only was there to try to observe us. So anyways, I posted this story on Reddit uh, years later, obviously. Now, probably six months ago. And I had somebody from North Carolina say, Oh my God. I have never told anybody in this of, of this in my life but I was walking down a trail right before sunset and I had to go back to my car for something. And as I passed through a vista that looked at a hill, I saw exactly what you described running way too fast up and over the hill. And so that's pretty jarring to me because I've never heard anybody describe this thing. And and maybe somebody listening can connect a dot between some sort of folklore or other sightings and this thing but I saw this thing clear as day, and it just immediately triggers a fear response because you have no idea what it is, but you know it's humanoid, and that's scary. Now, so your description is is pretty good, but judging from the fact that it was so so close to the ground and crouched down, do you have a a rough idea of what you think maybe the the height of this thing, if it were to be standing upright, would be? I would say it would be the size of a normal human if it stood upright. Oh, but so, it didn't. It, so it was the size of a, a regular person. I mean, it looked for all intents and purposes like a person that was just crouched down as low as they could possibly go with while still keeping their back kind of straight. Like if you did the Spider-Man pose, mm-hmm. it looked kind of like that. But his arms were like in front of him kind of doing the T-Rex thing. So they were held 
in the center. It looked like a very natural pose if, if that's if that's the way you walk around all the time. And then it ran like that too. It, I think I think it's called a roadie run where you crouch down as low as you can go and try to run. But it was incredibly swift when it did that. Was it using its arms as it ran? No, it used oh. only its legs, and that's I think what stamped me out of staring at it and just said we need to go because I, I there's no creature that moves like that. And you said it was covered in mud. It seemed to be covered in mud. It could have been. It's maybe like a, a sort of natural camouflage pattern, but to describe it, that's kind of the best way to describe it. It didn't. You couldn't immediately see it. You know how. But you were you see seeing the, skin. It wasn't like it was hair covered. No, it was. It didn't seem to be covered in hair. It seemed to be like a smooth surface, which was almost maybe like a rattlesnake on a leafy ground. Right? You could kind of make out the details, but your eyes. You need enough time to be able to focus on it, but it was. It seemed to be some sort of like natural camouflage that wasn't quite blending into the environment. That's creepy. Yeah, and it was like brown, sort of grassy, fallen leaves, sort of natural camouflage. No local lore or legend about any kind of a creature like that around the area that you ever heard of? No, nothing. I have never, and I'm pretty well versed in like cryptid lore and legends, and especially local ones. But never, yeah. Because heard I mean, anything you, you, like that. You've got the skunk ape down there that is pretty prevalent. Yeah, um, I've I've even had I've never seen one, but there are numerous stories around here from Jennings and the surrounding areas of of skunk apes. I know people in my family that have seen skunk apes, and I there's local reports of not just skunk ape but great apes out in places where they shouldn't be. So maybe it is just a great ape. I don't know, but <laughs> there's there's some sort of apes out there that do not like to be seen. Wow. What else have you got for us? All right. So the other story I had that I posted about was uh, another equally jarring physical and visual experience. But I worked in a movie theater at the time, and this was several years later, and I lived on a big sort of triangle road. And so I went to go jog down the road, and I got to the first bend in the triangle. And as I looked down the other road, I saw that there was another jogger. And so I kind of stopped because it's a suspicious time to be jogging. I don't, I don't know if I said this, but I worked at a movie theater, so I was jogging at 2 a.m. at the time after I got off work, after the movies let out. So it's the middle of the night, and there's another jogger out. So I stop at the corner, and I say, that's a little weird. But I watch them as they come down the road, and they are completely silent, first of all, completely silhouetted. And as they get closer, I see that they're taking these massive steps, like probably six-foot steps. It's not just jogging. This thing is in a full sprint, and it's probably, I would gauge it as being eight feet tall, roundabout. And as it gets closer, I can clearly see that it's like a misty, perfectly black humanoid. And as it gets to the fingertips, its form is kind of like becoming clear or transparent. Same thing with the soles of the feet. And I watch it run completely silently all the way down the road, right in front of me, probably 10 or 15 feet, and beside a house and into the woods. And I just stood there for a second, and my immediate reaction was, well, if he's running from something, I probably should be too. So I just turned right around, and I went home. 
Well, but that, that's an odd thought to have. It is weird, but you know, to look at him and see him in just such a full-blown, completely oblivious sprint running down the middle of the road, this shadow person or being, it, it's kind of jarring because I wasn't afraid of him, but I just saw him <laughs> running for his life in front of me, and I thought, well, he's either trying not to be seen, which he's doing a very poor job at, or he's running from something even more terrifying than him. But either way, I don't want to be here. Was that so your was that house. was that your gut reaction? Was that it was fleeing from something? Yes, I didn't because I, I feel like if he didn't want to be seen, he could have ran behind houses or in darkened areas, but he ran straight down the middle of the street because it was the most probably direct route to getting to the woods. And he ran beside a house too. So I didn't think that being seen was even on that shadow person's mind. Were there lights on the street? There were, there were that, uh, I don't know if this is in your area, but the orange street lamps, they're Mm -hmm. pretty good, but they kind of make everything look like Halloween, but enough to where you can see everything. So when it passed underneath those lights, there was no distortion or anything. I mean, it was, it was still what you thought you saw, which was a, a, a clouded wispy smoky figure. Yes. And he was cloudy and wispy, but not to the degree that you couldn't tell that he was clearly humanoid. And when he passed under the light, when is when it was the most jarring because the blackness of his silhouette didn't falter at all. It was the exact same color from Uh stepping out of the dim shadow and into the bright lamp. And obviously nothing was highlighted by the light. Not at all. It was a complete absence of light in the silhouette of uh, a shadow person. If peop- if you Google it or you're familiar with shadow person images, mm-hmm. it looks just like that image of the shadow person jumping over the couch. Wow. That was the same sort of like structure he had about him. So that was always something that stuck with me because, you know, you just see it right in front of you. And for me, even though it's scary, it's awe-inducing. I love the fact that I and myself and many other people have physically seen something like that right in front of you. And it changes the way you think about the stories you hear of other people experiencing things that are unexplainable. It does definitely do that. I, that, is, that is a very true, straight, uh, very true statement. When you have something... And it doesn't even have to be in in the same realm of of experiences. But when you know in your heart that you have witnessed something that is off, that is not what everybody sees, it does it does make you more accepting of other people when they talk about their experiences. Now, are there those that make things up? Yep, definitely. Are there those that uh make a lot more out of something than there should be definitely but usually if you have a good gut that's gonna that's gonna those those type of people are gonna go by the wayside just based on your your gut feeling but i i agree eric and i'd like to say something about that and you know i will i will never lie about any of this stuff and i feel like it's uh what is the word um I would say it's almost like a 
a, a grievous error to lie about this stuff because if if you enjoy it and you're super passionate about it, like I am, like I will take risks to try to see something unnatural. You know, I just I can't I can't shake it. I love this stuff. Then you're not doing yourself any favors by lying about it. You know, if you want to get closer to the truth and you want to find out that there are things and beings and things outside of your own experiences, if you're being dishonest about your interaction or your ability to find or locate these things, you're not doing yourself any favors. So I feel, I feel bad for people that make up stuff like this because the wonder that you get after even the fear, you know, is, is totally spiritual and I don't know, a game changer, right? Well, you know, not many people put it as eloquently as you do that, that feeling of having witnessed something that you know is special and is it's shaking because you're, you at some point think I'm witnessing something that should not exist according to my worldview. But the people that, that make up these things and the people that try to, it, it almost makes me feel bad for him because I think some segment of those people are trying to in some way, shape or form be a part of that, that magical moment that you got to have. They're trying to, ins- yeah, I, they're trying to insert themselves and they think if they, if they talk about it enough or they tell the story enough that it's going to actually, you know, make them a part of, of what everybody else is so interested in. And unfortunately yeah, it's just not the case. I completely agree. And you know, there's ways to be a part of this world uh, of unusual and paranormal things that you don't have to be dishonest about. Just be honest about your passion for it. And I think eventually if you're honest about your passion for it, you'll eventually find something or see something that is unexplainable. You know, and I think there is a, a very small sliver of truth to uh, you know these people that talk about if you speak speaking or if there's enough intent behind something that it it will generate um it'll it'll generate an occurrence it'll it it can't help but happen and i have that with the show it's happened more times than i can shake a stick at it it is it's almost as if you're speaking something into existence. And, it, and I'm not talking about spiritual uh, manifestations or anything like that, but, um, you know, the opening, uh, the opening of doors and uh, um, not literally, right. but, you know, um, networking with getting to meet, you know, somebody that's been a, a bucket list or, or somebody that, you know, you've always admired that you never thought in, in the world you'd ever get a chance to talk to. And then you do, and you have this meaningful conversation and, we talk about coincidence versus synchronicity and I fully believe that it's synchronistic. Yeah. I mean, it happens too often to be coincidental at that point, right? A bunch of, um, you know, dozens and dozens of meaningful coincidences. It just is clearly communicating the message. Hey, take a second look at coincidence. Is it really, but you're right in saying, and I think your experience is, is more valid than uh, a lot that, once you start to not just tug on that thread, but follow it, you may be surprised where it takes you. Yeah, I agree with you. 
I, th- I think, uh, but again, having had an experience with, with someone, um, you have to keep your, your mind about you. You have to, what am I trying to say here? If you, well, it reminds if, me of what we talked about earlier and I had mentioned, uh, you know, when you hear about people talking to spirits, it's really best to be skeptical and to scrutinize them and ask them, what is it that they exactly do? Because there's a lot of muddy water out there. And I think for us all to be able to grow and experience things, we need to be clear about what we're experiencing. Yeah, I would agree with that. Any other experiences or anything you wanted to touch on before we wrap this up? Hmm. There's so much to talk about. Um, I think the one that I would like to end with is one that we had talked about on the phone where uh, we had gone up to around Cherokee, North Carolina to get away from Irma because at the time we had a very young baby. And this, this will be something that I remember for the rest of my life. This was a great story. Uh, thank you. I'm glad everybody gets to hear it now. And uh, maybe this is the sign and the signal that I need to go ahead and take this trip again. So to start with, like I said, during Hurricane Irma, uh, my girlfriend and I had a very young baby. And we were both concerned about staying during Irma because it was supposed to be a very bad hurricane. So we said, you know what? Let's just take the week off. We'll head up to uh, Franklin, North Carolina, get a hotel if we can, and we'll hit up um, Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge, Blue Ridge, Cherokee, lots of great stuff up there. If you haven't been, I highly recommend it. It is a tranquil, uh, natural, and unforgettable experience. So anyways, we had been uh, west of the Smokies, very often. So we decided we'd stick to the east side. And we went to Cherokee Reservation, which is a great place with a fantastic museum. And the first day we went into the museum and uh, we were startled how friendly everybody was. And um, the guy that is one of the wax models in the museum was super friendly, signed a brochure for us. Uh, Great experience. So as we went in, one of the leading stories that they have is this story of uh, the Nunahai and their interaction with the Cherokee. And the Nunahai are also known as little people or invisible people, but their story is basically that they live in the highest point in Franklin, North Carolina, and they would often visit with the Cherokee uh, during campfires at night or would shelter children when they were lost in the woods at night and take them to a different realm or to a house that didn't actually exist, and then they would return them in the morning, unharmed and fed. And so for all intents and purposes, these are very kind spirits, and they like to interact with us. But they are invisible to us most of the time unless they take on a human form. Can I interrupt you real quick? Go ahead. Are these things also, uh, are they in the same family of, or is it a different name for the Pugwudgie? I, it seems to me, and I don't know much about Pukwudgie, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like Pukwudgies do negative things sometimes. A little bit more tricksterish, Right. They seem a little malevolent from what I've heard of them. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, maybe, but just based on the, 
the uh, the the local lore and legend that you were aware of that they're not the same. I don't think so. Maybe they're cousins, and uh, you know this cousin isn't as nice and kind as as this sort of family over here. Mm-hmm. But um, they do seem similar as far as like what they are and how they operate. But the Nunahai seem to be very kind and very accepting. And um, this story I'm about to tell you, I think, will will show you that even more. But during the Civil War, I, I'm pretty sure this is during Sherman's Path South. But I could be wrong, so if there's any historians, feel free to correct me. But the bones of this story will hold up. There was a Union army coming south, and they were going to eliminate and invade the Cherokee land. So the Nunahai came to the Cherokee in the days before, and they said, I want you to leave the reservation, or not the reservation at the time. I want you to leave your land at the time. And I want you to go hide somewhere, and the Nunahai are going to take care of this situation because there is an army coming. So when the Union arrived, they spotted that there was a massive army standing in the lands where they were intending to go. And they it was such a large and formidable army that the Union just went around and didn't even bother to engage with it. And so the land was preserved. Now, the Nunahai were upheld in legend always after that because they saved the land. And the Cherokee got to stay on that land, which would have otherwise been totally destroyed. And uh, good thing they did, right? So incredible story for the museum that you are now standing in and why throughout all of these times, you know, why that community of people is still there today. So anyways, what was most frightening about this story <laughs> was not any of its contents, but that the hotel that we were staying at was right across maybe like 50 to 70 feet from the highest point in Franklin, North Carolina. So I, being the person that I am, was ecstatic, and I couldn't wait to get home. So we had a great day at Cherokee, um, went back home to our tell, and we were trying to put Alden down. We'd kind of forgotten the events of the day. And we have, my son, his name is Alden. We have one of those kind of cheap pop-open rockers, And we're putting him in that. We're kind of trying to soothe him and get him to calm down. But he's really fussy and he doesn't want to go down because he's never been a good sleeper. And we probably try for about 30 minutes to get him to go to sleep. And we eventually say, all right, well, let's just let him whine in the rocker for a couple of minutes and see if he calms down. He he just wants to be left alone. So my girlfriend is sitting on the bed and I'm sitting on the end of the bed. And as we sit there, we start to notice something really weird happening. The rocker is starting to rock by itself, back and forth, just ever so slightly. And as we start to look at it, we notice that it's rocking very heavily. Like somebody is sitting behind it and rocking it just about as far as it will go. However, gently. And Alden, within a couple of minutes, starts to go ahead and go to sleep. He's being rocked so gently And whatever the influence was that was rocking that rocker, mind you, not an electric rocker at all, just a simple pop-open rocker, was so comforting to him that he just went ahead and went to sleep. And even uh, more interesting is that this went on for about 40 minutes. Even after Alden fell asleep, the invisible spirit was still rocking him to sleep. Jesus. 
So for me, I immediately connected it to the Noon High and I said, we are right next to their home. I'm really thankful that this spirit is visiting and rocking my child to sleep. This is really interesting for me and also very kind of them. And my girlfriend is just freaking out. <laughs> like in a bad I, way? Um, In a very, very scared way. I mean, I, I get that I'm unusual, but I can totally understand that if an invisible spirit is rocking your child, it's pretty uncomfortable. So I try to calm her down. I say, just think of what we learned today in Cherokee. The Nunahai are good spirits. They've always been good spirits to people. They've been known to take care of children even when they were lost. So just calm down. And eventually I got her to calm down. You know, I totally understandable that you would freak out over that. And I almost did too. But, you know, I caught myself and said, oh, it's the Nunahai. I'm right next to their home. But, um, we both sat there and watched it for probably 20 more minutes after that, just continue to rock and continue to rock. So I had to go outside afterward and say thank you to the Nunahai for that experience. So I'm really interested one of these days to take my son Alden back up there and back to the same hotel and maybe see what happens because I wonder if they, you would, always I hear, wonder if they would recognize his spirit. I, I'm sure they would recognize him grown up a little bit, but you know, you always hear about, scary experiences with spirits and how spooky and negative they are. But I think that's a good story to show you that not every encounter is negative. And sometimes the spirits are just like us and they just enjoy taking care of children or uh, showing you that they mean well. What an absolutely refreshing take on, on this kind of subject. You really, you really do exude a, a positive and and light lightheartedness about about the uh, the topic itself. Um, I think it's like I said earlier in the show. I think it's easy to get um, to get forced into the being scared of everything because of what we were taught. And you know, if you had any kind of a religious background. Those things are things that should not be messed with, and and they're most likely evil. Um, even though, you know, the main protagonist of most religions are a supernatural being to begin with. So, um, a lot of times that doesn't really make sense. But. Yeah, I think they're just as complex as we are. You know, once you follow that thread and you find out that these spirits are in fact real, you find that. Uh, just like us, they have their own complexities and philosophies and, you know, none of them are necessarily good or evil. And just because somebody's capable of doing good doesn't make them good. And just because somebody's capable of doing evil doesn't make them evil. But we exist in these grays in between. And so too do the spirits since they are just like us. But uh, I think if you go out there in the world and you keep a positive attitude and you have a genuine love and passion for these subjects, I don't think there's anything to be afraid of. I tend to agree with you. I do think there are some things that you should be wary of and and possibly not mess with. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. If something just seems bad, you know, it's kind of like, would you imagine hitting yourself in the hand with a hammer? You know, would you try that once? Nah, I know that's not going to be a good experience for me. Mm -hmm. So you just stay away from it. 
but there's plenty of things you can go out there and find. Uh, for me, that story is, is the goetic demons. You know, I was fearful of them because of my upbringing and what people had told me. And once I crossed that threshold, I found out that they were very friendly, good teachers and very accommodating. Well, and next time that you commune with them, I, I would appreciate if you threw a, a good word in for me and just ask <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> just ask that they, uh, they keep me on the right path because sounds like uh, a plan. It seems like, uh, the, the more this show goes on, the, the relationships that I have made with, with guests and with listeners as well. Um, I have so many people that reach out to me and, and comment on, on the shows and, and ask me questions, uh, about personal experiences that I've had and relay personal experiences that they have. And it's just been a, it's been a really such a positive experience. You know, I talk about some, some weird stuff and, uh, not everybody's experiences are as, as, uh, positive and, and well-received as yours. But, uh, this is a great way this is a great way to, to get the message out. And, uh, I just, I'm, I'm thankful every day for the, uh, the relationships and the, the people that I've met and the conversations that I've had. It's been a, it's been a real, it's been a real trip, man. These journeys into the paranormal and the otherworldly truly are something special, you know, because, I think most of our lives, most of us have shaped this worldview about what is and isn't. And to have things which come up, come up and shake that worldview, even though it can be scary or spooky, it's so rewarding in my opinion. It is, and I'm it, glad that we're all on this journey together. Yeah. It, is, it, is very, uh, it is very jarring when you meet somebody who has uh, lived their life in a box where where these type of topics are are so taboo and so um, maybe not even taboo but ignored um, dismissed it, yeah it, it's just it's it's really jarring when you meet somebody like that who who has no interest whatsoever in in these kind of topics when I agree and they're so prevalent I, I find myself so knee-deep in uh, esotericism and occultism sometimes. And uh, you may think, you know, what? well, what do you say when somebody's like, I don't believe that? And the answer is, that's fine. Like, it only takes one experience, one experience for you to go, oh my goodness, perhaps this, there's something to this. And that sort of unfolds the investigation into it. But if you don't have that experience yet, that's okay. It's all about that curiosity that you have into it but for somebody that doesn't believe it that's fine you know it's my sense of wonder and purpose comes from being able to know that there is strange things out there and uh i would i would give a lot to see those strange things so even those spooky and scary experiences is something to be treasured agreed justin thank you so much for taking the time this has been a great show. It's always a pleasure talking with you. And 
Anytime, Eric. I look forward to uh, your your Q&A, which is coming up, and talking in the future. Yes, definitely. Uh, just a reminder, if you haven't seen my post, uh, please get a hold of me uh, either through contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com or you can message me on Instagram, Facebook. Just reach out. I want to answer your questions, whether it's about a guest that we've had on, whether it's about a topic that we've talked about or a topic that we haven't talked about, or if you have personal questions for, for me. Um, I'd really like to do a Q&A episode and uh, get those questions out to us. I'd love to talk about them. Justin, thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. I'll be sending some questions your way, so right. I look forward to it. Please stay in touch. I sure will. Thank you. All right. Have a great evening. You too. I want to hear your story. I want to hear your experience. So email me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, then leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Share the show with your friends. Share the show on social media. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. All at Uncomfortable Podcast. And until next week, my friends, stay uncomfortable.